five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Uh, Nick Drake when the day is done and we're just getting started it's a little dark yacht I think we got real dark there for a minute (laughs) you know sometimes I'm looking for a song to play and I don't have a lot of time and I knew I wanted to play something by Nick Drake at some point because I think Nick Drake has a place on Dark Yacht. In fact, Drake and Dark kind of almost sound alike. And so I saw that 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 uh, it was a still of a sailboat, and it was kind of dark. I thought, okay, it's Nick Drake. Uh, it's dark, and there's a sailboat. I didn't realize how dark it was. <laughs> That's like darkest yacht. Um, the good news is, is that the boat was rescued. It got a new sail and it took to the open seas once again. I don't know if that's true, but that's my ending. Now behind me is a kind of a sunset scene here. It's a beautiful sunset scene. If you're listening to the uh, podcast, you can always join us at 15 minutes of flame.com. That's 15 minutes of flame.com. And um, I got the weird green screen today, too. I don't know why. Sometimes technology does not want to play nice. Today is one of those days. Um, so, yeah, I've got this wonderful, beautiful sunset scene from Marbella, which is off the coast of Spain right here. And uh, it's lovely. It's one of those biblical skies where the rays and the light of God is shining through the heavens and blessing all those who are cradled beneath its warm and loving radiance. And I think we need a little bit more of that in the world, a little bit more warm and loving radiance. It's funny. I've been having this ongoing kind of inner dialogue and dialogue with other people who I talk to, care about, um, spend time with on the phone. And so I, I work through these, these things in my head sometimes. And, and I know I've, I've brought this theme up before in the past, but I'll, I'll bring it up again. And it has to do with difficult individuals. And difficult individuals are not always easy to be around. Um, but a lot of times they can be incredibly successful in some ways, maybe more successful than 
quote unquote average people. And it all started when I started to watch these uh, interviews with the drummer, Buddy Rich, who can be a real complete asshole. But there's also another side of him where he can also be funny and gracious. But the reason why Buddy Rich was an asshole was because he was such a great drummer and he pushed himself to heights of excellence that other people just don't understand. So that's what happens when you're, when you have a vision and you're really good at something you are demanding of yourself. And then that same level of demand is generally transferred to other people. And you can look at people who have been staggeringly successful. And in many cases, you'll find that they're, they can be very difficult personalities. Buddy Rich is one of them. Um, another person who was staggeringly successful, but not a very nice person is Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer was a tremendous chess player, but he didn't suffer fools gladly. Um, Steve Jobs is another person who, incredibly successful, did not, he did not bow to the lowest common denominator. He was a difficult person to work for. But it, it, look what he did. I mean, he basically brought Apple back from the grave. And you don't do that unless you can move some energy, right? Unless you can move some energy, you can't do it. Michael Jordan was like that. Michael Jordan was an asshole. Total asshole. Willed his team to win. Browbeat them. Uh, pushed them. And it was because he was playing at a certain level and he needed them to get to that level so that they could be successful as a team. Who else is like that? Trump is kind of like that. Although I think with Trump, sometimes you get the attitude, but you don't always get the results. But Trump has the, Trump has the, uh, the asshole built into it. I'll tell you who else was like that. It was Ted Williams, the hitter. The great hitter, the last person to hit 400 in Major League Baseball. And Ted Williams could, the, the challenge with people that are really, really good like that and very singular in their approach and very difficult to be around is that they have at times a real challenge with the transference of knowledge, meaning that they can do something really, really well, but they don't often have the patience for other people to get there when they're in a different role. Like when they can't immediately impact the thing that they're doing, it's like they can't transfer their, their secret sauce. It's a, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, Ted Williams was a terrible baseball manager. Terrible. Um, Rick Barry, another guy, super difficult, really good, very difficult. Uh, nobody would hire him to coach. He always wanted to coach. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell. These are all really difficult personas. They're very good at what they do. It doesn't always translate into other areas of their life. 
That's how it works, at least sometimes. But then you get people who are really, really good, and they bring a lot of other people to the party. Those people do exist. Nile Rogers is one of those people. He's incredibly talented. Has sold over 500 million records as a producer, songwriter, musician, and um, great guy. Really, really great guy. You'll, you'll run into people that are like that. And I'll tell you, he was incredibly successful. A lot of times he had a vision. Sometimes it had to be it had to be carved out. But David Bowie was actually a really nice guy. He was always very positive, very upbeat. Uh, that was my experience with him. So you can't have people who are extremely good at what they do. And they bring as many people along on the ride as possible. And then you have the difficult personality. But the thing that they share in common is that they're very good at a certain thing. Bowie was kind of more of a generalist because he could act, he could paint. He was kind of a Renaissance guy. But I think we'll know him more for his musical output than his stage turn on Broadway as the Elephant Man, which, by the way, got great reviews. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Just a little bit of an intro there. Nick Dre couldn't live with the world. His demand for perfection in himself with the imperfection of the world as a backdrop and a canvas led to his untimely death. I believe Nick Drake committed suicide before he was, before he was uh, 28. He's part of the 27s. And um, an absolutely beautiful and soulful artist um, whose successive output through his music becomes more and more bleak until finally his last record, it's uh, the voice of someone in very deep despair about reality. I think Nick Drake was probably borderline or schizophrenic and took in a lot of information. That's what happens with some people. They just take in a lot of information. They take in emotion. They take in ideas. They take in beauty. Uh, they take in sometimes uh, the brightest light and the darkest spirits of the world. And so it can be very hard for them to close down the aperture a little bit. And music and art are, you know, they're, they're populated by people like that. Ian Curtis of Joy Division was another, another example. He's not on the yacht, by the way. He's not even on Dark Yacht. All right. So welcome to the show. We have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I'm going to get into a little true ham science, and then we're going to hang out with the best chat group on the internet. Really excited. I had a, I had a really awesome um, conversation this morning before the show with Darlena Watson. And uh, Darlena is going to be at our event. And I'm really excited about having her again. Uh, she was she was a 
one of the real stars of last year's event doing her first presentation and she was totally awesome. So I'm really psyched about having her come down and on Sunday and she's going to give us a 90 minute tour on human design. And uh, it's kind of her dense primer for people to get up to speed with human design, PowerPoint slideshow, whole nine yards. So anyway, looking, really looking forward to that. And my good buddy, Christopher Lynch of True Hemp Science, he's going to be there. I know he'll be there on Friday. He might be there for longer than Friday. So he'll have all this product available, ready to go. Everything from the gummies to the moon dust and some, uh, hopefully, some of our uh, white label specifically crafted product for Chataria with the uh, Chataria pillbox and the whole nine yards. Uh, all right. Somebody's trying to call me. The Paleo Pharmacy. I know who that is. Call him back. Anyway, Chris is going to be there and he's going to have all of his product available for sale. So if you want to pick up some CBD uh, while you're here in Texas, you can do that. He's also going to be putting together some concoctions for us that we can sip and sample. So it'll be like a little bit of a CBD speakeasy. And I know he'll be there Friday. He may be there longer. Uh, he's got a lot of other shows and markets that he does. But uh, if you can't make it, you can always go to truehemscience.com uh, backslash ref backslash 23 and get $100 worth of product or more. And Chris will throw some free goodies in there. Uh, $150 and you get the free shipping. So there's plenty of really, really cool stuff in here for your internal health, your topical health. And uh, right now I am definitely on the moon dust train uh, because of my experience with moon dust. I don't have any on me right now. Um, the good doctor has it, but I had some over the weekend. And let me just tell you, it is effective, surprisingly effective. Like it's, I wouldn't compare it to Kratom, but it's got its own kind of slightly stimulating, slightly focused, but relaxed agency. And you can add it to your smoothies, your coffee, a lot of different ways you can bring the moon dust into your life. So anyway, truehempscience.com. Those are our pals. All right, let's go over to the absolute best chat on the internet. And that is Chattari. You know what? I got to put some links up too. Uh, we got my man Tomas who had a brief moment of being locked out of his account on Twitter. That was interesting, but he's back on Twitter and you're back in chat. Good to see you, Tom. There she is. Sony. Hi, Sony. There's my man, Ryan, seeing you real soon. Uh, Miss Nakia, praying for Florida. Yeah, I know, right? We got some people down there. Um, 
lot of people in Florida. In fact, Steve is down there. Anna Sophia. Always good to see Anna Sophia. Who else? There is Fran. Fantastic. What do you think, Fran? Could you go down there, dive down there in that, uh, that ocean and plug up the Nord Stream? Fran being an experienced diver. I'm not kidding. I'm telling the truth. Uh, let's see. President Biden, if Russia invades, then there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We'll bring an end to it. How will you do that exactly since the project is in Germany's control? Oh, we have ways. <laughs> Mark S., what's going on, my brother? A great convo with Mark S. It was on Monday. Captain Carey. Good morning. There's Hucklebuck411. Morning back, Huckle. Let's see who else we have. Oh, Anna Sophia. She says, love this song. I am a violin lover. Hi, all. Liking Dark Yacht. Rocky is digging the Dark Yacht. Looks like, uh, oh, hi, Wendy. Wendy says is here, too. The beautiful one. That sailboat looked to me to be floundering. That sailboat was having a hard time. Good morning, all. On the Nord Stream already, Reuters and other mainstream news outlets are trying to sell the Putin did it story. They're incorrigible. I don't know if that is untrue, honestly. I'm going to take the contrarian view here today, and we're going to explore this from a number of different sides. Beth Berry, Double B, the double barrel shotgun in the house. What's going on, Beth? There's my man, Michael, DJ MC. Good to see you. Brother Mike, going to see you soon, too. Queen Lisa, crown and all, here amongst us. That was pretty dark. I know it was a little, it was a little over dark, but you know, sometimes don't we, are we in a Scorpio moon now? I think we might be in a Scorpio moon. I think it fits actually. Uh, who else do we have? Your Florida trip will not be happening in October. How about a Texas trip? Question mark. I was told that is the worst hurricane in the history of Florida. Uh, let's see. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody new? Equa, what's going on, Equa? Good to see you. Um, JMP Love. Hello, Jackie. Going to see you real soon, too. Scrubbies. We got back-to-back -back scorpions. Hi, Tamara. Good to see you here, too. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Kathy Kramer. Good morning from Hurricane Central, St. Petersburg, Tampa. Thanks for being here, Double K. K2. 
Moon, moon, moon dust smoothies. Yes. That is next level in the smoothie. For sure. She's holding up okay. Don't like being stuck indoors. Yeah, I don't blame you. Steve Letro, beautiful day in the shores of Maryland. My wife was praying for Florida with a large group last night. Good. Good. A spiritual agency. We need more. More spiritual agency. Hi, maybe. Nice to have you on board. Oh, uh, let's see. Am I leaving anybody? Debisu's here all the way from Europe. Oh, it's today Maurice's birthday. Happy birthday, Maurice. Right on. If we were in the same zip code, Maurice, I would buy you a beer, a libation of some sort. Okay, I think we're all here. President accounted for. Again, thanks for being here. All right. Um, shall we get into this uh, event? This Nord, Nord, Nord Stream 2. So astrologically, if you go back to the 24th and you look at the chart of the 24th, which I think I might have still up here. Let me see if I can track it down. That'll give us a visual. It always helps to have a visual. Am I right? Always. Sometimes... Uh, Word pictures or visuals. They can be very effective. Let's see. What do we have here? I might have ditched it. Like, oh, it's over. I don't need to keep that chart anymore. I only have a certain number of charts that I keep on board. All right. It shouldn't be that hard. Let me do this. I'll do a quick... Uh, quick chart here. All right. So we're going to go back to September 24th. And we're going to take a look here just at, uh, let's do that. All right. I mean, I could even do, what was it yesterday? Why don't we do yesterday? Here, let's do yesterday. Because that's when it happened. So it'd be the 27th. And let's do other town. Let's do um, Moscow. We'll just use Moscow. Let's do that. All right. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's the it's the same effect, right? It is definitely the same effect. So let me bring the chart up here. For all of you who are listening on radio, I've just uh, or the, the podcast, I just popped a chart up for the uh, uh, the blown the blown pipeline. So th again, this is a lot of this um, energy is relevant with the exception of the moon 
because on the 24th, the moon was balsamic and it was in Virgo. But you can see here with Neptune opposing the sun and then even Venus, Mercury, right? And when we think of Virgo, we think of things that are essential, like they're essential for our day-to-day living. You know, people that are, are uh, six-house people in our lives, we, you know, they're essential. You, we couldn't really live without six-house people. They perform tasks that are seemingly mundane, but if we didn't have six-house people, the world would not work. So we're talking about people like uh, veterinary assistants, dental assistants, dentists can be six-house people. Uh, the people that work on your car, the people that cut your lawn, right? The people that that dry clean your clothes, if you need that sort of thing. Those are all six house people. Those are, those are what we call like the folk, right? So that's really important. And the six house rules Virgo. So when we see Virgo prominently placed here, it's retrograde and Venus, um, I believe, uh, in its detriment, um, it's significant, right? Because these are everyday things. And when you get into gas and fuel, they're the uh, the energy to make everyday things happen, right? If you don't have it, you can't do the everyday thing. You can't build something. You can't make something. So here's Neptune, which rules the oceans. And it's in Pisces. And what do we have? We have a Neptune opposition, right? And I talked about this uh, as it related to the 24th and Neptune just sucks things out, right? Like, so we can see this as being very much related to what's happened with this, with this pipeline. The challenge with Neptune here, and this kind of gets into our conversation a little bit, is that um, you don't always know the full story with Neptune. It looks one way on the surface, literally on the surface, but beneath the surface, there's a lot more going on than we can speculate and articulate with. I'm going to try to get into that a little bit today. And then, of course, we have Jupiter down here, which is closer to the Earth than it's been in, what, 60 years? And it's in Aries. And it's retrograde, which takes us back, right? Jupiter's going back to the echoes of World War II because we're in the Jupiter return. I mean, we, we hit the Jupiter return of World War II back on September 3rd. So Jupiter makes everything bigger, right? And we, you know, we see Jupiter, especially in Aries, it's got explosive potential. What is Jupiter is gassy. I mean, if you look at the planet and you know, embrace the planet as a planetary body, um, it is primarily composed of gas, which is what, very, very Nordstrom-y. So we can see this, right? And I, and I pointed this out on the 24th, the chart of the 24th, and it's still there. And then we also have Mars, which is in, was even closer in terms of like a T-square with Neptune. So we get into that, that T-square right? What does Mars do with Neptune? It literally cleaves it, breaks it open. 
So we can see the chart for what happened yesterday, very similar to the 24th chart. The only thing that would be really different here is the moon, which was balsamic, and the sun, um, which is in opposition clearly to Jupiter. Uh, and that's challenging, right? Because it takes things out of balance. The moon, uh, the sun was at one degree on the 20, 24th, which was Saturday. So we can see here part of the story that's being told, at least astrologically. So I wanted to, to poke the bear a little bit around this event. And over the years, I have trained myself to step back a little bit and, and try to understand these events in a way that is not completely 3D. I may not be at Emily Moyer's level in terms of you know, going into the full quantum, um, but I have, I have my own methodology. Because it's very easy now for people to just get herded into a particular uh, point of view, right? I mean, look at Georgia Maloney. Or within 24 hours after I did my podcast yesterday, it's all over the internet that she's a member of the Aspen Institute and she's a big fan of Israel. She's gone to the wall and uh, she uh, doesn't, you know, not into recognizing power. She's a Lakutnik, right? That's what she is. She's a, she's an agent of Zog. And you can still be a globalist, trust me. So it took 24 hours for the world to basically cool those jets on Georgia Maloney. And you got a dose of it here, uh, right at the start of the day. So... This is a good sign because people are not taking things on surface level, right? We're learning to go beneath in a Neptunian way. We're learning to go beneath the superficial rendering of events that is very prevalent in our culture and um, our society and the world in general. So the, 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 the commonly held idea is that, and by the way, um, I've been on message boards. I've read, hey, I got some intel, and this is what I heard happen. Uh, it was the U.S. and the English, and they had a sub, and they went down there, and they blew the pipeline, Right. So there's that. That stuff is out there. You had Biden back in February this year saying, oh, yeah, we could do that if we wanted to. We could do that. So everything is pointing towards the U.S. and England and NATO and having this be one of those kind of Pearl Harbor moments, right? This is a Pearl Harbor, Reichstag um, moment. This is the international event that potentially triggers World War III. 
And it's very easy to get uh, upset and pissed off at the whole thing, which, I mean, look, we're going through a very dark phase. And it, there's no, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. This is a very, very dark phase that we're in. And we have to be able to get through it. You know, we're here, we're witnessing um, the unraveling of culture and time in a way that we've never seen or witnessed before. Maybe if you're around during the Tartarian reset, you might have you might have been able to see something like this, but this is unlike anything we've ever seen. And this is not anything that people could be really prepared for. I mean, you could go through trauma. And a lot of people, almost everybody's gone through trauma. And then as an individual, you learn how to work with it. You know, you, you exercise it, you embrace it, you become creative with it, um, you integrate it, whatever. Most people do, some people don't. And, uh, but even with the, the working <clears throat> of the trauma, and some people call it the shadow, I don't think it really is enough to prepare us for where we are now because we are really in uncharted waters because everything is so wired globally, so wired globally. And in order to, again, navigate, we're just going to keep using these nautical metaphors. In order to navigate this, you've got to get really good at learning how to uh, keep things afloat when the seas are turgid and the waves are high, right? This is, this is a, a storm of epic proportion that we're in. And I don't think it's going to get any easier. It's not going to let up until we go through this completely. So you're going to need to be able to keep your shit together. And one of the things that I recommend but you can live your life any way you want. But one of the things that I recommend is that you take a step back and instead of jumping into the neatly set mousetrap that they've put together, don't take the cheese so quickly. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So let's say the goal here is to wipe out petroleum use. That's exactly what they've said, right? They've said, okay, well, we're going to uh, make everything carbon net zero by 2030. Well, what do you do? You, you wipe out petroleum. What do we see happening here? with both the Nord Streams, they're being wiped out. Now, is it being done? Because, well, we want to make sure that uh, we go through the Great Reset and um, we're going to make sure that Russia can't supply, you know, fuel to the rest of Europe so that we can bring in the turbines and all the other garbage that is going to pass for power. Maybe. Or, and I'm going to throw this out there, maybe Russia is part of it. Maybe Russia is part of the whole deal. 
They've been part of the whole deal since they've been the Soviet Union. Why would it be any different? You go back and you uh, listen to Anthony Sutton's deep, 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 deep dives on the relationship between the United States, the Bolsheviks, and, and the former Soviet Union. And they are hand in glove, man. Like, there's no distinction between the U.S. and the USSR. And part of what uh, Sutton uncovered was that by participating in the Bolshevik Revolution, that American corporate interests would then be able to control the industrial development or lack thereof uh, in the Soviet Union. It was a way for them to make sure that the Soviet Union was dependent upon them and their, uh, their factory parts, their products, etc. Um, if you go back and look at critical periods with the Soviet Union during that time, they were close to starving. The Soviet Union was, I mean, right after the Bolsheviks take over, they're close to starving. And the reason why they were close to starving was because the Russians took away the farms from the Kulaks. So we're taking, we're taking your, we're taking your farms. So we're going to nationalize all the food production. And what did the Kulaks do? They stopped working. Like, fuck you. You took our land. We're not going to do anything. So then the Russians had to rethink that. And, um, Lenin said, okay, well, we'll pay them, but they have to pay taxes. And that's exactly what happened. But there was a time where it looked like they were going to starve until the United States, on more than one occasion, sent them wheat and kept the Russians from starving. So we have a longstanding relationship with this country in terms of industry, there, by the way, there are still American companies operating inside the, uh, you know, the Russian borders right now. Not every American country, company has left. And when you go back and you look at the dynamic between the two, it's pretty clear that you know, these were globalist forces that were working together to create a duopoly, to help create the Cold War, to help build up the military industrial complex. And the American government knew it. They knew it. They openly, like there were, there were anti-communist people inside the government, obviously, but not at a high level. Roosevelt was a communist. Truman wasn't a communist, but he was he was a, a weak man. And Truman uh, gave his presidential powers over. He's the first person, the uh, first president to truly give his presidential powers over to Zog. So this whole Russia thing has been in the mix for a very long time. Why would it be any different now? Question mark. Why would it be any different now? If you go back and you look at the, the drama surrounding COVID, 
and we have the the frenzied lockdowns and we have the um, hardcore selling of the shots in Russia, you didn't have a choice. They developed their own vaccine, which is Sinovax, I believe. And they were locked down. You had to wear masks, whole nine yards. Like they were not any different than any other country. And I remember having a conversation with um, a client and who was Russian and living in Italy. And she was very concerned about everything that was going down. And this was during the formative like days of this whole thing where the program was rapidly accelerating and she was wondering if she should stay in Italy. So we started to talk about Russia and she said, I, I heard cause she has family there. I heard it's even worse in Russia. So if you look at that, Russia was doing exactly what the World Economic Forum and the WHO wanted them to do. They were in, repeat after me, lockstep. Lockstep. The only country that I know of uh, in Europe that didn't play by the rules was Belarus. And they almost you know, completely ran him out of the country by putting together, you know, a coup. I mean, they were running a coup on Lukashenko. And what was for Putin, that's why Lukashenko now is arm in arm with Putin. Putin saved Lukashenko's political career, pretty much saved Belarus from the globalists. That happened. But Russia did the exact same thing that all these other countries did. So my, and I'm just throwing this out here to, to be a bit of a contrarian and try to get you to think about things in ways that are uh, maybe a little less 3D, is that Russia has been weaponized. And they're doing the bidding of the World Economic Forum, along with the United States, along with these other countries, to do a number of things, including hasten the Great Reset, hence the uh, destruction of the pipelines here. The other thing that's taking place is there definitely seems to be a war in Europe, uh, in the EU. But the EU also seems to be on some level of compliance. It's really weird when you look at the story that's going on. It's like the EU is like, okay, well, we're going to commit political, economic, uh, and social suicide by backing Ukraine. And because we're all NATO members, we're going to go to war against Russia. And we don't care if it forces people to uh, burn their furniture for heat this winter, right? So why, why is Europe so genocidal at this point? Why are, they, why are they participating in their own demise? Now, in order for Europe to stay afloat with power, because they're not getting it from Russia, 
who do they have to buy it from? The United States. And the United States is now repositioning themselves. Uh, this is this is this is part of the fucking you know nightmare here. The United States is repositioning itself. It's not even the United States. It's it's more along the lines of the fiat bankers, the multinational corporations. If BRICS is forming a coalition to have its own basket of currencies, um, if Saudi Arabia is tempted to uh, unhook from the dollar so that there is no, no more petrodollar, then what does the multinational corporations, people like Jamie Dimon, by the way, what do they do to maintain their dominance? Well, they become the de facto petroleum dealer. So the United States, theoretically, again, we're just going to use the term United States. We're going to call it the United States as part of the West or the multinational corporate West pulls together oil and petroleum from places like Venezuela, uh, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, all the places that can produce, even the United States, this, uh, this crude, this oil. And what do they do? Then they become the dealer. And then they wind up dealing to Europe. So instead of having a faltering petrodollar, which has been the default currency for the planet since Nixon was president. Now they're just going to become the petroleum dealer for the world. This, this, is, this is part of what's happening. So this is the multinationals, the Federal Reserve, propping up the U.S. economy, essentially by eliminating the competition. But at the same time, because all these things are happening. You remember in Star Trek where Spock would play that multi-level chess, which I thought was always really cool. Um, I think that's what's going on here because I think Russia is part of the game. They're being weaponized, right? They're being weaponized through this war. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't like open acts of aggression. And that doesn't mean that at times... Um, the tables are turned on people, even if there is some degree or level of um, agreement, right? Because when you look at the history of gangs and gang warfare, that's what happens. <laughs> gangs will double cross each other. And this is essentially what we're living with on this planet. Government is gangs. So two things can be equally true. And I know it's hard to wrap your head around that, but two things can be equally true. Russia can be in on it and they can also be looking after their own self-interest. Because people don't really understand how that mindset works. The people, a lot of people are, um, in a good way, I'll use this term in a, in a good way, analogy. A lot of people are anchored to their morality that keeps them from really understanding 
and operating from the level of pure sociopathology. If you're a real sociopath, you don't, you really don't care about what's right or wrong. You could care about what's right for a while if it suits your interests, but if it doesn't, then you discard it and then you're you know, playing another card. And this is really important to understand. Very, very important to understand because it keeps you from being locked into this duality. Now, clearly, we can be in stages of conflict, right? It happens. Russia decided that they wanted to conscript 300,000 men. And what are they doing? They're running to Georgia. Now that now Russia sent tanks to Georgia so that they can't get out of the country, right? So it's kind of like Big Brother, the TV show Big Brother, or the TV show Survivor. If you want to know how humanity works, watch about three seasons of Survivor somewhere between season one and maybe like season eight. You'll find out real quick because people will form alliances. We'll work together. We'll stab each other in the back. We'll carry each other along, right? That, that you can see everything you need to know about Machiavellian machinations on Survivor. So think of Survivor on the global stage on steroids. That's, that's where we are. And there are times when these groups work together for a very specific goal, right? And then there are times when they will break off. There are times when they're double-crossed. Um, you know, what is the point of no return? When somebody just goes too far, maybe we'll find that out. If you're, if you're playing the, the 5D uh, Trump chess game, that what's happening is that the United States and Russia are in cahoots to take down the EU. I don't necessarily believe in that, but it's another way of looking at it so that you don't get caught in the, uh, in the polarization of this whole thing. So it may not be easy, right? Because we need touch points. If you're on a, you're on a journey and you have a map, you need to know where you're going. You need to know where you're going to get gas along the way, right? I mean, it's really important. So you, we do need touch points, but the world that we're living in now, all those touch points have pretty much been eradicated. Ever since 311, 2020, we're not really living in a world of touch points. So you're going to have to develop your internal guidance system right? You're going to be like a bat. And reality is a relationship with your uh, sonar navigation system or radar, because I guess a bat's airborne, right? Sonar would be like a dolphin or a whale. It's just a different way to look at this. It's a way, especially astrologically with Neptune, what do you really know? What do we, what do we really know? You know, we, we, when Tucker Carlson 
gets on TV and basically says that Biden did this and the Biden administration did it. You have to really grapple with reality in a lot of ways because Tucker Carlson is a deep state baby. And he has been appointed and anointed to uh, be the Vox Populi. And he's, he's the... He's on the soapbox so that he can give voice to the average American's concerns. So he's going to be drafted to sell a program. That's what Tucker Carlson is doing. So when he comes out and says it on the same day that it happens, you have to be very careful. I'm just telling you. Tucker Carlson will give you 80% of the truth. That's what he's there to do. Maybe 90 on a really good day, but it's it's the 10 to 20% that's obfuscated. That is what gets people um, into trouble. So I'm just urging that you look at this whole thing from a different perspective. And if if the media says Putin did it, he might've done it. He might've done it. If the media says, well, it was the U S and it was the Brits and Joe Biden was responsible for it. It's possible. It's possible. You know, my advice is to not get attached to try to see it from a different perspective. What is the end game? What is the goal? The end game and the goal is to take down the West, period. End of story. We're part of the West. Europe's part of the West. Russia is this interesting interzone between the East and the West. But that's the goal. And to take down and break down the West is no easy task. I mean, we're talking about dismantling. If we if we go from 1900 to uh, 2000, right? We're talking about dismantling, or 2020, 120 years of evolution, industrial development, capitalization, <coughs> Um, social groups, social classes, religious orientation. It's all in the mix, right? You can't do it overnight. I mean, we're talking about disassembling a massive, massive social structure. So you have to have every means available in order to do that. That is the goal, right? And then what is the outcome? Is the outcome to give people, you know, roach milkshakes for their diet, soil or green crackers? Well, if people will accept it, of course. Of course. But if people won't accept it, and most people won't, then the idea is to give them something that's much more palatable, something they think that they really want. But ultimately, whatever that looks like, that's where they want to go. 
They want to destroy this thing. They want to take it down. And they're doing a they're doing a bang up job. But at the same time, they're also waking people up. This is another byproduct of it. And this is where the game is interesting. And what do we do when, with our um, ever-expanding, awakening moment on the planet? Well, we're working on it. We're finding out. We're finding out what it's going to take and how we're going to deal with this thing. And it's not going to be how we've dealt with anything else before. It's just not. So I think that as individuals, if we can unhook from some of the narrative, then it actually leaves some space for us to be able to figure out, you know, what, what we can do, what our role is and how do we, shift our reality this is important like because i you know we can we can all fundamentally agree that this world is being deconstructed right before our very eyes we can all fundamentally agree on that from the shots to the casualties of the shots which are legion now um to what might happen to people with the shots and maybe i'll get into that tomorrow um like we can all fundamentally agree on this where we might not always agree is who's behind it, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And I don't think there's any good guys. And consequently, there's plenty of bad guys, but maybe there's some good guys. Don't get me wrong. I think there's some good guys, but I don't think they're who you think they are. That's number one. Um, and that the bad guys, to me, the bad guys are symbolic. We're not even symbolic. They're catalytic. The bad guys are here to wake us up. How many people has Klaus Schwab waken up? A lot. Millions. How many people has Bill Gates woken up? Millions. How many people has... Uh, Joe Biden waking up millions, right? So, so the, the bad guys, the bad guys are the alarm clock. And when we look at that or look at them from that perspective, it takes a little bit of that polaric edge off of it. Doesn't make them uh, any less excusable for their, participation in the deconstruction and their overall malfeasance, but it shifts our relationship with them. They're here to wake us up. And the good guys who turn out to be not so good guys, well, they're here to wake us up too. I was just recently reading about Reiner Fulmick and how a bunch of people, I guess he took a lot of money and a bunch of people turned on Reiner Fulmick. I was never into the whole Reiner Fulmix thing. I just wasn't. And, you know, I was banging this drum. Oh, Nuremberg 2, Nuremberg 2, Nuremberg 2. I'm like, well, how's Nuremberg 1 holding up? And everybody 
in a dark time, everybody's looking for somebody with a flashlight. That's what was happening. And Reiner Fulmick had theoretically a flashlight. But when you step back and you look at the dynamics around that or what he was proposing, you're like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. And, you know, I tried to tell people, first of all, the Nuremberg trials, for all intents and purposes, were a show trial. They were there mainly to sell an agenda. That's what they were there for, to sell an agenda. And that agenda was to um, illuminate the atrocities of World War II. That's what the Nuremberg trials were about. None of the main players that were really part of the Third Reich were part of those trials. They'd all left. They had all gone to South America. So they weren't even a part of the, you know, the, the main players weren't even a part of it. That's number one. And number two, it was really a setup in a lot of ways for what happens after. And of course, what happens after is the reparations that go to the victims and the victims' families of the Holocaust and a whole series of networks of um, never forget museums all across the country, all across the world for that matter. So the Nuremberg trials were basically a show trial in order to brand a particular uh, event and impact on the culture and the world, right? And I'll tell you why. Because everything that came out of the Nuremberg trials, like nothing has ever really emerged. I, you know, if you and I did this, I went back and I looked and I tried to find examples of people being uh, medically operated on or being given some form of uh, pharmaceutical or medical procedure, which would be an operation or, you know, ingesting something against their will, which is really what the Nuremberg, without their consent. That's the fundamental piece of the Nuremberg trial. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any modern examples where there was an actual trial and people were held accountable. Let's talk about fluoride. Fluoride is a pharmaceutical additive to your water. And it's not even fluoride anymore. It's hydrofluorosilicic acid which is the byproduct of creating ammoniated fertilizer. That's what they put in your water. And they do it without your consent. They Maybe if you sign up for your water bill um, and your service, maybe you're signing into part of your agreement. I don't know. I've, I don't have a water bill here. But this happens every day. You are being medically mediated every single day of your life with fluoride in your water. That's a violation of the Nuremberg Code. And this shit's been happening since the 50s. 
which is when I think they started to go hog wild on the fluoride tip. So how's that working out for people? It's really not. It's not. That's number one. When I would, when I look at that and bring that up, it's like, yeah, Nuremberg is being violated almost every fucking day. Okay. So then let's move this thing forward. Let's say Fulmic was going to be able to get his Nuremberg 2.0. Well, who's going to hear the case? Is it going to be the world court? I, I guess this whole thing was, well, he was very, um, he was very good at suing Volkswagen. I think that was his credentials. But even that's coming to question a little bit. Anyway, but let's say, we'll play, we'll play along here. Let's say that's part of the story. Well, where are they going to have, who's going to hear the case? The UN? I don't think so. The World Court and The Hague? And that's a global decision. That is a global decision. And I always thought that even if they went down that path, it wouldn't be a good precedent to set. Because now you have a global court that's actually deciding things for countries as a whole. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not sure that's a really good thing. And even if they did have a global court, do you think that they would rule in favor of the people? That it would make headlines all across the planet? That the incredibly powerful pharmaceutical companies would have to stop doing these things? Then what happens to the whole fluoride thing? Like Once you pull that string, everything comes unraveled. And do you think that the people are in control of the flow of information, what we're putting in our bodies, what we're putting in our food, what we're putting in our environment, would allow it to get that far. That somehow the purity and the light of reason and judgment would shine through and uh, create this rare moment, this rift in time that would allow a judgment to be rendered unto man. And that judgment moving forward would change the entire complexity of life on earth. Do you think they would allow that? The answer is no. I'm sorry. It's no. No. And that's what people were hoping for in getting into with the whole Reiner Fulman. And I don't mean to bag on that, but it's an example, right? It's an example of putting your eggs in a basket where you have somebody who looks like they're going to solve your problems for you. And at the end of the day, they don't do it. They take the money and run. Right. I, I just didn't see how he's going to be able to pull that off for the very, for the, for the reasons I just listed. So we're in a time where, um, you know, you have to try to unhook from things because if you can unhook from things, you can see things a little bit differently. Now we can look at, again, the various players who's involved and there can be traction. There can be 
you know, sometimes where there's smoke, there is a fire. But this is just my, you know, this is my approach now. I want, I want to, I want to get, I want to get above the situation and I want to try to see it in a way where I am not completely attached and things are happening. They're happening. The hardest thing to do, and I'll get off this rant in a second, but the hardest thing to do is to hold two separate things, right? Two separate things at the same time. And understand that both things can be equally true. That is the hardest thing for humanity to do. When um, I studied uh, literature in college, I had a, a big like five unit course in Shakespeare. It's one of those classes I think we I think we met every day. It was a, you know you had you had to really dig in with Shakespeare if you're an English lit major. And one of the things that when you read Shakespeare, every single play, whoever wrote them, right? What, you know, who, whoever's responsible for the penning of those plays. Um, one of the things that Shakespeare does is he sets up a moral dilemma at the beginning of every play. It happens very quickly. There's a moral dilemma. And so with the moral dilemma, the audience or the reader is cracked open. So when we get into both sides being equally true, it presents a moral dilemma in some ways. Because what we want to do is we want to, we want to plant our flag on the side of things that are right and true. And I'm with you. Like I am there because ultimately those things are better for us especially if we've lived in a world that's been a feast of lies. But in order to get there, to really understand it, people have to be able to hold both poles and that both poles can be equally, or both events or multiple explanations of reality can be equally true. And if you can do that, and not lose your mind and not be a ship at sea without a rudder or a keel, you'll be able to understand more. Because when you get really, really, really high and elevated into the echelons of power, right? The people who are carrying out these planetary programs, whether or not they're the architects of them, but they're carrying them out. They don't have any allegiance to right or wrong. They don't have any allegiance to truth or illusion. None at all. They'll, they'll use anything at their disposal to do that. Anything. So you have to, kind of elevate to see how they operate in the world. Because from their vantage point, they look down on us and we're ants. We're just scrambling around. 
and they can do this and they can do that and they can do this and they can do that. And they can just herd people in any number of directions. So in order to really, you know, crack this reality code, you have to begin to see the world in some ways from their point of view, from their vantage point. And they don't have any allegiance. They can move things in any way they want to. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is about the accumulation of power, the accumulation of resources, and ultimately um, the extraction of our spirit and our own personal essence. Loosh, batteries. Don't become a battery. And when you have a battery, what do you have? You have two poles, right? You have a positive and a negative charge. Speaking of which, I changed the battery in my car yesterday. I, you know, I hope I did the right thing by getting this car. I was just tired. I was tired of paying a shit ton of money for gas. So I decided to, uh, not because I'm a hippie or anything, but I got a hybrid. I got, I got a, a, a used Lexus hybrid and it was great because, you know, I've traveled a little bit and I was like, wow, I didn't have to stop as often to get gas. That was great. But now I'm dealing with battery issues. Speaking of batteries. Okay. Um, I wanted to place a couple, I want to, I want to go out of a little bit of humor. So <clears throat> this is unintentional, but Maybe it's intentional at the same time. I found this. Let me see if I can find this thing. Um, hold on. I found this story. Um, uh, let's see. What are we talking about here? Hold on. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, here we go. Gonna find the right thing. By the way, Libras are the best musicians in the world. I did a thing on, uh, was hanging out with Johnny Cruz last night. We were talking astrology and Libra. And I went through all these Libra musicians and it's like, holy shit. These got there's just so many. There's too many to um getting bombed with telegram spam. Okay, let me see if I can find this another way. Give me a second. What time is it? 1028. Okay. Start the bookmark here. Uno momentito. All right. Um, give me one sec. All right, so I can find us. Okay. 
this story is about this guy. And I think it kind of fits in a weird way, like the reconciliation of opposites. So it's this uh, white dude from Louisiana whose skin starts turning black. They think it's due to Prozac, right? So you can see here, like from the visuals, it's almost like he's got like vitiligo taken over. This is really weird. So, I mean, the guy is literally turning black, right? So he's, he's got this kind of melanin crisis going on. Let me see if I can play the video very quickly. Hold on. Um, I think I can do it. All right, here, let's, uh, let's play this. So I just wanted to give y'all uh, a little update on what exactly um, is going on. Yeah, everybody knows I was taking medication. I started turning colors. Um, as far as health-wise, the doctors say I'm healthy except for my ACTH levels. Um, you know, that points to Addison's or whatever, but I didn't have any other side effects from it. The fact is they really don't know why I'm changing colors. Um, it, you know, so they're still trying to dig, but they're only digging so much. I was really like, hoping. They know that it was triggered by the medicine, but they don't know, like, what is in him that made it trigger it. Like, we've already said it before, but it could be an autoimmune disease or it could be genetics. Um, like, this is my hand and this is his. Like, look at that. That is crazy. Yeah, and, yeah. like, our faces, like, look at the difference. And then he's got like, see, like I'm like the same color as his belly almost. I'm a little bit darker, but now do yours. That's the difference. <laughs> so this dude is, um, he's reconciling duality for us in a lot of ways. And I just thought, this is interesting. This is really interesting. And, in a, in a, you know, that's a Mars and Gemini kind of moment there. So then I began to think about, well, what other kind of examples of this do we have in our culture? And I came up with two and they're both very equ equally funny in their own way. And the first one, I'm gonna play this for you, is a, tr is a trailer from the movie, The Watermelon Man with Melvin Van Peebles as director and Godfrey Cambridge. And it's a story um, about a guy who's doing these uh, baths and using the UV light. So here's the, uh, here's the watermelon man. Very funny stuff. If you've never seen it, it's a hilarious movie. Here we go. <laughs>
Winner and still undefeated, folks. Pay some respectful homage, please. Fair, please. Arrogant, arrogant, they're all arrogant. In the good old days, back in the old south, you'd have to drive from back here. <laughs> Get it? Back of the bus? Watermelon Man, not Maynard Ferguson. That's what's happening. Poor dude in uh, Louisiana. Although, who knows? You know, maybe if he can um, learn how to drop some uh, hip hop rhymes, he could have a completely life changing experience. Anyway, The Watermelon Man, very funny movie. It's basically Godfrey Cambridge wakes up one day after all these treatments, he becomes black. And it's it's a it's how his life changes and <clears throat> his worldview changes and um and you know and this whole idea of kind of racial undertones and assumptions they're all part of it. It's very funny. It's a very funny movie. And I will say this: um, Melvin Van Peebles indirectly is kind of responsible for my life path and. The reason why that is, is because I remember reading a story about him as a filmmaker, and I think I was probably in my 30s, maybe early 30s, and he talked about how he traveled around Europe doing tarot card readings. This is, I think it was in the 60s. I'm like, shit, I'd like to do that. I think I could do that. I think I could make a, you know, a little bit of a living, and that's exactly what I did. And that led to one thing and another thing and another thing. And ultimately it led me to be here with you because of the relationship with tarot and astrology and esoterica. And it was like, well, shit, if Melvin Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles can do that, then so can I. So Melvin, thank you for indirectly inspiring me and helping me kind of take a chance on my own journey. All right, I think we're here. We're good. We're gonna pull this. Uh, we're gonna pull this this boat into into port here, the dark yacht, the yacht noir. And we didn't necessarily solve any of the world's issues or problems, but what I was trying to attempt to do today, and I hope you were able to, you know, grok it a bit, was to do your best to look at these events in a way where you're not necessarily Velcroed up to them and that you automatically assume and know what's going to happen, what's taking place. It makes it murkier. I know we all are looking for 
a clear path. We're looking for definitive understanding of these issues. But the, but the greater truths are the ones that are harder to work for. They're not the low-hanging fruit. Like you got to climb the tree to get to the greater fruits. So if you can wrestle with that process a little bit, it'll, it will yield results that are very interesting. At the end of the day, I want us all to live together and be happy and, and uh, be done with a lot of this, you know, conflicting bullshit. So don't get me wrong. That's, that's where my, uh, that's where my flag is planted. And with that, that's how I'm going to live the rest of my day. So I'm out of here. Thank you for being here. Chataria, tip of the cap to you. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to step what's possible. Um, I'm Robert Phoenix. We'll be back tomorrow with some more fun and games. Until then, bye for now.